Hello and welcome to the SciComm Toolkit Podcast. This is the show for scientists and science communicators to gain all the tools they need to bring their science stories to life. I'm Soph, or some of you may know me as Soph Talk Science, and I am your host. And thank you so much for joining me on this little passion project of mine. So way back now when I started this podcast, in the first episode, or or it might have even been in the trailer, I said that my new podcast was going to be called The SciComm Toolkit. But I didn't want it to just be about science communication. Instead, I was using SciComm as an umbrella term for communication, public engagement, outreach, and so on. So this could be used as a useful resource for as many people as possible, depending on your interests. So today's episode is the first one to step outside of that communication bubble and take our first step into the world of public engagement and talk about evaluation. Now, you might be thinking that I've skipped a whole bunch of things as evaluation is normally something that comes at the end of a project. But this topic is so important that I just had to cover it on the podcast as soon as possible. And why that is will hopefully become crystal clear after you hear the chat I had with today's guest, Dr. Jamie Gallagher. So Jamie is an award-winning engagement professional specialising in engagement, impact and evaluation. He has worked with dozens of institutions and subject areas all across the world, improved the reach, profile and impact of research engagement in almost every academic discipline. And in this interview, he shares an amazing guide to getting started. And it's packed with many examples of evaluation activities and some fabulous analogies too to bring everything to life. So without further ado, I am delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Jamie Gallagher. Well, thank you for joining me today and sharing your, I'm sure, all your wisdom with us. Uh, Maybe you can start off by telling us all a little bit more about your career journey and what it is you do now. Yeah, Um, so I am uh, an engagement trainer, consultant and science communicator. Uh, so there's kind of three aspects to to what I do now, and uh, that is a trainer. So I work with universities, charities, professional bodies around the world, looking at how they connect with non-specialists. As a consultant, I work with, again, charities, museums, uh, different organizations, looking at their evaluation practices. So how do they demonstrate impact and the value of their engagement work? And then my third strand is as a science communicator. So I've done some TV, some radio, I've written a book, but most of the work that I do is live on stage, taking science and making it interesting. So those are the three things that I do, and they have gradually grown over the past uh, decade, I would say. So I started doing a PhD in chemistry and electrical engineering at the University of Glasgow. While I was mm-hmm. doing that, I dabbled in some training. So the, the Science Centre offered a, an afternoon exploring science communication. I thought, oh, I'll go along to that. Amazing. And I enjoyed it. And then I did more training and more training. <laughs> and then uh, once I felt like, okay, I've had the training, I started getting experience and I started 
uh, writing sign shows and things like that. So that's that's kind of it started with dabbling in training during my PhD, then getting some experience, and it has just grown to be my career now. Yeah, no, there's so many things um, I thought I'd want to talk to you about, but um, yeah, maybe we'll have to just invite you back on for every little thing that you do. And <laughs> but today we're gonna just look at evaluation. Um, but just before I dive into that a little bit. Um, this podcast has obviously got Psycom or science communication in its name, uh, but I'm kind of using that as an umbrella term for kind of anything related to Psycom, public engagement, outreach, and so on. But as someone who is probably more closely aligned to the public engagement side of things compared to me, I thought it might be interesting to ask you your take on what the difference is between science communication and public engagement and where the lines are, because I always find they're a little bit blurred. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a big and important question. And there's some people out there who really like definitions and there's some people mm. I know who don't really like giving definitions. I'm one of the definition people and I do two things, as I've already said. So I train people and that's normally in public engagement, but I'm mm -hmm. also a science communicator and those are two separate worlds for me. Um, as uh, public engagement, the definition I work to is a definition of public engagement from the National Coordinating Centre for Public Engagement. So they're a body that look after public engagement across the UK and they define public engagement as the myriad of ways in which the activities um, of higher education can be shared with the public. Engagement is by definition a two-way process uh, involving interaction. And so for me, public engagement is that two-way dialogue. It's me sharing something with you. It's speaking and listening, asking and answering. Communication, on the other hand, is normally about the delivery of information. So public engagement is effectively a conversation around a research topic. Communication of a research topic is maybe a press release or information that is put outside of the, the Research Institute and hopefully people will respond to it. So engagement, two-way process, communication, a one-way process. That's the way I define it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, but I also think this, obviously they kind of both need each other as well because it's an element of communication in engagement and you also want your communication to be engaging. So um, yeah, I can completely understand why it's all blurred and all that sort of stuff as well. So today we wanted to talk about evaluation and I wanted to talk about something that is normally considered at the end of something towards the beginning of this podcast because it's it's important which we will discover today by talking to you a little bit more but I think there's probably some listeners who don't know much about evaluation or maybe haven't even heard of it when it comes to public engagement science communication so maybe you can just give us a very brief introduction to what it is and what it can look like. Yeah, I, mean, I love evaluation. I I wouldn't <laughs> thought I that was something I would say. If, you know, if you go back a few years ago, uh, I didn't think I'd be saying that. But I mm -hmm. love evaluation, and the way I describe evaluation um, to people for the first time is really it's just a structured way of listening to people. Uh, mm -hmm. It's listening to people that you are working with to work out what do they know, what are they concerned about, what are they interested in, and by really listening to people you're able to work out am I doing the right thing is this working for the people I'm connecting with what am I learning from the people that I'm working with and what are they learning from me so all of the evaluation work that I do is really just helping people to find their voice and listening to it we listen and then we respond to it 
So why should we be doing it? That's a, the big picture question, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, the the practical reason why we're doing evaluation is because in the institutes that people will be working, when they're doing engagement or communication, they are funded by someone and someone wants to know that they are spending their time in a productive way. So if we are getting a grant, then the grant is going to expect us to report on the benefits that their funding has achieved. And so we're evaluating to learn, have we had any positive impact? Do people know more about the science that we're talking about? And just to improve as well. So if we're listening to people and working out how they're responding to our content, then we can improve, we can get better all the time. And also just that really key component of finding people's voice, empowering people. And we can only do that through listening to them. And that's where evaluation comes in. So really three reasons to evaluate. One is to improve. One is to report on the benefit or change that you've had. And also, crucially, to give people a voice. I love that. I've never heard of it described as like finding a voice or anything like that before. But no, I, I really like that. Uh, so when, I guess, going through my like why, what, why, all those kind of questions, when should we start yeah. thinking about evaluation? To me, uh, evaluation begins right at the start of the process. Um, so I, if anyone's come along to any of my training courses before, they will know I explain things uh, through these four questions and normally through analogy of Lord of the Rings. And Amazing. I'm, I'm going to throw you through this, uh, so bear with me. Uh, spoilers ahead if you've never read Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Um, so in Lord of the Rings, big journey to destroy the Ring of Power. Now, why are we doing this? Clarity of purpose is incredibly important. We're doing this to stop Sauron taking over Middle-earth. We have clarity of purpose. That gives us our mission. We think about who's involved in the project. So in Lord of the Rings, you have the Fellowship of the Ring, a group of different individuals with different skills and attributes, all of whom come together to deliver a project larger than themselves. And then we think about what we need. How are we going to do this journey? Will we map it out, the resources that we need? And so we thought about the practical elements of our journey. And then crucially, the fourth question for me is, what is the marker of success? And this is where we think back to our initial aim. So if we're trying to stop Sauron taking over Middle-earth, what are we going to be able to point to to demonstrate success? And if you know you're talking, you'll know that when the ring is destroyed, the Tower of Barad-dûr, the tower of the big eye at the top, collapses. I told you there'd be spoilers. <laughs> but that's our marker of success. We set out to try and stop Sauron taking over Middle-earth, and then we're able to point to this big collapsed tower. All of our heroes, all of our enemies know that the tower has collapsed, Sauron has been destroyed. We have been successful. And that's evaluation. So that's when we're right at the start of our journey. We're thinking, okay, what, what are we trying to do? What, what are we trying to do with this project? And from that, and immediately from that, you think, okay, what am I going to be able to point to at the end of this process that says, yes, I have achieved that? So as soon as you've got an aim, you turn that aim into something that you can evaluate. Fantastic analogy. <laughs> so what I guess it's going to be completely project individual dependent but what what sort of things can you measure and how do you know that you're or how do you find the right things to analyze given your goals and things like that yeah although each project is is different there are common elements come up time and time again and so 
one of the first things that I do is I separate out the information into four different areas. The first of those areas is demographic information. And here I want to know who is involved in the project. And this isn't just, if we're thinking about science communication, this isn't just the people that we're speaking to. This is also ourselves. Who is involved in the project? Why are they involved? What is the background of the researcher? Who is hosting the event? You know, if you're working in collaboration with a museum, why is it happening? So who is involved? Also feedback information. And for feedback information, I tend to just ask fairly standard questions. Was it the right length? Did people like it? Was it interesting? Was it enjoyable? All of these things tell me whether I've created something that is fit for purpose. So that's my feedback information. I create something of quality. I then have evaluation information. And this is where I look for the change that's been created. So is there has there been a change in thought, knowledge, behavior, attitude? What is different because of my project? And then the fourth uh, area that I look into is uh, what I call going forward information. And this is me listening to people and working out what they would like next. So you could be thinking for evaluation of this, we could be asking the listeners, what topic would you like to hear about next? Now that tells mm -hmm. me nothing about the quality of the current episode that they're listening to, um, but it does give you some information that's going to allow you to plan in future. So four areas of evaluation that I always look into. Demographic, who is involved in the project, both audience and presenter. Then we think about feedback. Is this fit for purpose? Are we creating something of quality? Evaluation information. What change has been fostered? Changes in thought, knowledge, attitude, or behavior. And then going forward, what information would be useful to you to plan for the future? It's more obvious to me how you can sort of collate the the demographic information the feedback information but for the the change type information like a change in attitude a change in behavior yeah. how can you kind of measure those things well for most of that you need something before and something afterwards mm -hmm. and that can be it, it varies depending on the project so one really nice project, one nice project that I like, this came from the University of Warwick and uh, they were looking at children's knowledge and attitudes towards animals. So this was mm -hmm. a, a project with zoos. And what the zoos did was they went to primary schools and they got the children to draw some animals. Mm -hmm. So this was just a fun little activity for them. Draw some animals and tell us about where they live. And all those drawings were taken away and they were kind of looked through and thought, okay, right, that's that's what the children drew. And they were kind of put in a box for a while. Then the zoo went back to the schools and they delivered talks on animals and their habitats and their life. And then they did some animal handling and then they took the children to the zoo. And then six months later, they gave the children some paper and some pens and asked them to draw some animals and where they lived. Now this mm -hmm. was repeating the same exercise that had happened six months earlier. They then took all those drawings away and what they did was they looked for any changes in knowledge. They coded the drawings. Was there um, one, a positive change in knowledge? Was there two, uh, no change in knowledge? Or three, was there a negative change in knowledge? Were they drawing worse examples of animal habitats afterwards? Mm -hmm. And what they did 
what they discovered was that six months after all of these interventions, after zoo visits, after animal handling, the children were drawing more accurate representations of animal habitats than they were before. So that is us showing that there has been a positive change in knowledge linked to the interventions that we were delivering. So probably it's probably going back to when we were saying to think about it right at the beginning because if you need to kind of create those baselines for certain things you might need to factor them into your planning earlier in the project and fitting it in with your timelines and so on and so on yeah definitely because if if you're going out to change knowledge behavior attitude you need to be able to tell me what the current landscape is like so if we are saying oh you know people know lots more about physics because we have uh, delivered this science show to them well, you're going to have to show me that they didn't know it beforehand. We can't wait until we've delivered all this content and then say we've radically changed the world if we can't evidence that people thought or behaved in a different way before they met us. And do you have to do that with the same audience that you would deliver your show to, for example? So the example you gave was with, I'm assuming, the same sort of class of school children, or could you go out and just use... um, I don't know, any literature that would be out there and research done before or just a a similar sample population? Yeah, again, it'll depend slightly on the project. I mean, it's very nice if you're able to work with the same Mm. people over the long term, but that's not always going to be possible. And as you said, what you can do is you can look to the literature or you can do general surveys. And so there'll be lots of information out there that is able to tell you that this is a particular attitude that uh, people might have uh, towards a certain subject. For example, there was a lot of work done by the Royal Society of Chemistry uh, called the Public Attitudes to Chemistry. And they went out and they did a big social science project to work out what do people think of chemistry. Now that gives you a good baseline. You're not able to say that, so let's say you had a chemistry project, you're not able to say that that is necessarily exactly how your audience think, but you could say that on average people in the UK think chemistry is this, this and this. We worked with people for a long time, we showed them all the different career paths that a chemist can go down, and the group of people we worked with have demonstrably different views, attitudes and knowledge compared to the general UK population. So we can use data that is about a whole population and then we can still say that the people that we worked with have different knowledge or attitudes compared to that baseline survey. So you can use data that's already out there. So when you're then sitting down to plan your evaluation, what are the most important things to consider? Oh, most important things to consider. I have a few rules uh, before I even think about the information I want to capture. So (laughs) it it has to be ethical for a start. So we Mm -hmm. need to think about how we're answering, asking questions, how we are making people aware of how the data is being used. So it must be ethical. I also refuse to let evaluation interfere with the engagement process itself. Mm -hmm. I've seen engagement projects where an overly complex evaluation process is burdensome to the people that we're working with and is putting people off or leaving a bad taste in people's mouths. So the evaluation can interfere with the engagement process. After that, I start to think about 
who I'm working with. So I separate out everyone that's involved in the project. So if it's working with schools, then I have pupils, I have teachers, maybe I have parents, I have researchers, I have collaborators, I separate them all out. And then I work out when I might be able to speak to them. Am I able to speak to them before? Am I able to speak to them during? Am I able to speak to them afterwards? Then I start to think, well, okay, when I'm speaking to them, what can I be doing? Can I give them a quiz? Can I give them a survey? Can I run a focus group or an interview? So I start from the kind of ethical standpoint and making sure that I'm not interfering with the engagement process itself. I work out everyone who's involved in the project, when I can speak to them, and then I think about how I can speak to them. And how do you balance sort of the for want of a better word, like the time commitments of each, like if you want someone to engage with your activity for an hour, say, how can you, can you then use some of that hour to ask them the questions or how long can you then ask them for like additional time to answer some questions, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really, really great question. And it's one that's asked a lot. Um, I think there's two routes to go down here. So if your evaluation is embedded within the work that you're doing then you can evaluate the entire session through uh, mm -hmm. if the evaluation and the engagement are one and the same then you can do as much as you like if you are having a separate discrete evaluation process so let's say you want to give people a survey afterwards i would make sure that the evaluation takes up no more than 10 percent of the activity so if you had an hour-long session mm -hmm. you can have six minutes of an evaluation ask so maybe three questions in a survey if you are doing a drop-in science uh, kind of tabletop activity and people stay with you for 10 minutes uh, then you're not going to get a whole lot of time to evaluate them no. um, so that's that's one route but as, as I said if you can build in the evaluation to the activity all the better so when people come over to your tabletop activity ask them a question get them to draw mm -hmm. something get them to vote on something that can be part of the activity it can also be useful for your own evaluation and then you can you know you can carry on the evaluation throughout because people think it's a quiz but actually this is part of you really listening and learning to them great tip great tip so when you're making your evaluation plan then what what does it actually look like on paper is there a particular structure we should follow oh well there's lots of different planning tools that are out there um and really for me it's about separating everything out so one really really common tool that's used is a logic model and mm -hmm. a logic model starts off with what you are putting into the process. So what do you have available uh, in terms of resources, the money, the buildings, the time? It tracks through and asks you um, about what kind of outputs you're going to have. So what you're going to produce, what kind of outcomes are you going to have? What is going to be different as a result of your project? And what kind of impact are you hoping to have, that overall change? And whether you use a, a logic model or something else it's just about answering some very set questions and the three most important ones for evaluation i would say are what are the outputs what are you producing what are the outcomes what is different because of your project and what is the impact what is the overall change that you've created outputs you record you just count them outcomes 
you measure them, so focus groups, interviews, surveys. Impacts, you demonstrate them. You write a report, you write a convincing argument to show the overall change that your project's achieved. Yeah, I think I've used a logic model once or twice before, and I always get confused between outputs and outcomes. But just to maybe give another sort of example, outputs are kind of the the workshop you're delivering or the particular activity, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The analogy I use, I mean, everything I explain is through analogy, <laughs> is um, school. So if you think about the schooling system, um, a pupil starts school, aged about five, goes through a multi-year process uh, to emerge at the other end, a well-educated, well-rounded individual who's ready for the workplace, further study, or another path. If we think about the outputs from the schooling system, those are the bits of artwork that decorate the fridges. Those are the essays that are produced, the artwork that's produced, the plays that are performed. These are products of the education system. If we think about outcomes, then we tend to measure schooling outcomes uh, in a subject-specific way. So an improved grade in English, an improved grade in mathematics. The pupil knows more about this subject area. The outcome um, leads to the overall impact. And the impact is that well-rounded, well-educated individual. So outputs, we record them. Outcomes, we measure them. And impact, we demonstrate them. Another fantastic analogy. I'm loving all these analogies. <laughs> so we've mentioned a couple of sort of evaluation methods throughout this. I think we've mentioned surveys, focus groups, um, like voting, polls, etc. Do certain evaluation methods match better with certain activities or could you just give like a questionnaire to suit all activities <laughs> um oh no definitely not survey for all activities <laughs> um it really it you need to think about what's suitable for your audience you know if if you are giving um a lecture uh, to a group of uh, middle-aged professors at a university and you put out little postcards and you ask them to draw an animal habitat <laughs> they might not respond well to that because it's just it's kind of like no no this is not the done thing this is not uh, what we expect and they might be happier with a survey but if you go into a classroom full of seven-year-olds and you do an activity and then you give them a survey that's not going to go down well. So you're thinking about what is the expectation? What might people be interested in engaging with? What format is going to be appealing for them? And you work with that. So you could get them to draw things. You can have graffiti walls. You can do quizzes. You can do interviews and focus groups and surveys. I mean, they, I'll tell you the creepiest form of evaluation as well. <laughs> this, is, this is what uh, museums use. If you ever go into a museum, and you've noticed someone lurking in a corner. Oh, yeah. You know where I'm going here. Yeah. Lurking in a corner with a stopwatch. They will be there <laughs> to follow a random member of the public around the museum, tallying up what you do. Uh, mm. If you stare at a painting for five minutes, they're writing that down. You spend 10 minutes in the toilet, they have written that <laughs> down. It's, it's creepy, but they try and work out where people go, how the museum is used. And so there's a lot of hidden evaluation going on. How they get that through ethics committee i'm not entirely sure <laughs> yeah i guess it just shows though that maybe we're thinking of evaluation methods as the graffiti walls the i don't know dropping coins in boxes things that happen at the end of activities but there are things you can 
like observational things. That's the word I'm looking for, I think, as well, isn't there? You can. And and even these questions that we're asking don't necessarily need to be at the end of the activity you're doing. If I give you another little example that I really, really liked in its simplicity, uh, a tabletop activity. And the tabletop activity was about drones. So these were researchers mm. who looked at drones. And when you approach their table, they would give you a little piece of paper and they would say, before we let you explore all the drones and we're going to show you a demonstration of them flying, what we'd really like is for you to draw a little drone for our wall back here. We've got a gallery of drones that people have drawn. Could you draw one for us? And they got people to draw a little drone and then they stuck it up on the wall. Then they explored the activity. That's what half of the people experienced. The other half of people experienced the approaching the table and the researchers immediately said, well, let's get exploring, let's show you this, let's do a demonstration of the drones, blah, 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 went through all the material and then said, oh, and before you go, can I give you this little piece of paper and can I ask you to draw a drone for a wall up there? Now, what the participant didn't know, what the, the member of the public didn't know was they were either being asked to draw a drone before they explored mm. the material or after they explored the material. Only the researcher knew they were doing before and after. So we're not able to say that, yes, this individual person has um, learned or changed their knowledge, but what they're able to do at the end of the activity is show that people that drew the drone before they interacted with the researcher drew this. People that drew the drone after the interaction with the researcher drew this. And if we can demonstrate that those drawings on average are demonstrably different then there's been a pretty convincing change created by that activity so even if we are thinking about those simple um asking questions voting on something separate them out alternate them one person is asked before one person is asked afterwards do the people after the activity show a difference in attitude than the people before I guess some of these things you've mentioned, you've mentioned the ethical side of things. Um, what would make a particular evaluation method ethical or non-ethical? Unethical for, even. For me, the ethics come down to clarity. It's about informed consent. So do people know how their data is going to be used? How long that data is going to be stored for? Who to get in touch with if they... Um, decide that they don't want to be included in this study and so it's about clarity if someone fills out a survey do they really know what they are submitting their information to you also need to be making sure that you ask only for information that you require so it's very common that people will ask about um, people's postcode because they want to know where they're coming from but mm. if you don't know why you need that information you can't be asking it you can't just ask for quick ask information because you feel like oh you normally see that on surveys no every question you ask i should be able to say to you why are you asking that what are you going to use the data for and you need to have an answer for that so be clear with the information uh, that you're asking for and how you're going to use that data make sure that the data you're capturing actually has a purpose and also just make sure that you're asking questions in a clear and inclusive way. So often, 
I will see options presented, particularly for demographic questions, that will ask, um, which of these do you identify as? This, 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 or other? Mm -hmm. And imagine how it feels to constantly throughout your life to tick the other box, that opaque box that says you're something outside of our normal data set. We don't care. So always making sure that when we're asking questions, people are able to give a true reflection of their answer and allowing people to articulate their own answers. Make sure that you know how you're going to use the data. Make sure people know how you're going to use the data and make sure that you're asking only for information that you need and you ask it in an inclusive way. So for the the drone example that you gave, how much did you need to tell each participant whether they were being told before or after giving all the information and, and so on? Well, this is where it gets even more complex. <laughs> so very often, if we are evaluating a project in an in-depth way, then it will involve surveys and interviews. And these are very easy ways of uh, having a kind of ethical framework around it. So before people do a survey, you're explaining all this information. Mm-hmm. With the drop-in activities, it's often seen as reflective evaluation. So this is evaluation that has no intent to be fully analyzed, published, or available elsewhere. Effectively, for the drone example, there was no um, ethical framework put in place, for want of a better word, uh, because this was seen as information just for the researcher's own interest. So there was no intent to publish or use the data. Now, this is an ethically great area so i would be making sure that even if i was asking people to draw something maybe on that card that i was giving them i might have a couple of people a couple of bits of information i might say we will be analyzing these drawings and uh, interpreting the data we might be putting up some of these drawings on social media or publishing the results of our work and if you have any questions you can contact um, me and i'd have my email there So although researchers are currently getting around the fact that, oh, I don't need to be really upfront and clear with all this data use because I'm just doing it for my own interest, there are simple steps that we can take. So even if it is writing, drawing, voting, have information presented that says we will be recording this data, we might put the results up on social media, we might even publish it, but we're not capturing any personal or identifiable information. And that would just involve a little sign or a little quick conversation at the start of the activity. Great. Something to to think about in advance again with all your planning. So we know, hopefully everyone now realises why evaluation is so important and the benefits, why we need to do it. But what about the other side of things? What are kind of the challenges or the limitations that we probably need to be aware of before we start? One thing to think about is what you can and can't ask Mm. so a a prime example on so many surveys i will see the question have you learned something new it's a really really common question have you learned something new and people will say yes yes i've learned something new now this is a really interesting thing particularly when universities engage with people and then ask have you learned something new because think for a second not about science communication public engagement think about the university system 
university, the students start, they go through a four-year degree. And imagine at the end of those four years, we went to each student and said, have you learned something new? And they go, yes. We go, congratulations, <laughs> there's your degree. It wouldn't work that way. How do we do it? We put them through this multi-year process and we get them to demonstrate that they've learned something new. We get them to write reports. We get them to answer questions. They show that they have learned something new. And then we accept that they have and we give them a degree. But for some reason, in the realms of public engagement, we ask people, do you know something? Oh, yes, yes, I definitely know more about this topic <laughs> now. And that's not actually enough. We can't have people self-articulating changes in thought, knowledge, behavior, attitude. We need to get them to demonstrate it. And also, we need to stop trying to capture huge changes in single questions. So if people set out to inspire the next generation of scientists, that is a huge and a noble goal. Yeah. But you're not going to be able to ask a single question that demonstrates success at the end of that process. You can't demonstrate that people's lives have been radically altered by having three questions in a survey did you enjoy today's activity yes are you going to go on and study science yes would you do this again yes i've had impact it's not enough we need to drill down ask smaller questions and think like social science evaluation of social science you're going to have to build up a convincing argument and it's going to be bigger than one or two questions so for a goal like wanting to inspire the next generation of scientists, is that a goal that is simply too big for an engagement project? Or is it a matter of making sure that you can, in a way, stay up to date and catch up and follow up with people years and years in the future to see how much impact you can have long term? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I would hate to put people off. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. <laughs> try and inspire the next generation of researchers but what I will say is if that is your only goal if your goal is to inspire the next generation of scientists you're not going to be able to demonstrate success on that mm -hmm. so what you need to do is you need to have multiple goals in mind so let's let's take this example as the, the inspiration so I will inspire the next generation of scientists I will also aim number two go to 10 schools from lower socioeconomic areas. Goal three, I will speak to 200 pupils who did not know this was an active area of research within their community. So now I've got three goals. And goal number two, going to 10 schools from lower socioeconomic areas. Well, that's something I'm going to be easily able to record and demonstrate. So I can show that I've gone to these schools. This is where they're from. I can ask whether these schools have had previous connections with this university before. Mm -hmm. Number of pupils. I can count the number of pupils. I can ask what the pupils know about research. I can ask what they know about local research. And again, I could maybe demonstrate that I'm speaking to people uh, about this topic for the very first time. So then what I do when I come to write that report, because again, I'm thinking all of these markers of success, I say, I set out to inspire the next generation of scientists. And I did this by taking research into places that hadn't been before, giving people a positive experience, making people feel empowered and positive as related to this topic. So if it's my singular goal, I'm setting myself up for failure. 
So what I do is I keep it as a goal, but that, then I add in sub-goals that I am going to be able to record, demonstrate, and measure. And when I write my report and I write all this information down, people will be convinced that I am, at the very least, contributing to a culture of inspiration around science. So it's when you're making those goals, it's ensuring that they're the smart goals, so specific, measurable, attainable, relative, relevant, and timely. And it's kind of the inspiring a next generation is kind of the big picture goal, but it's probably not necessarily that smart goal. That's exactly it. Yeah, so, so don't get rid of it. You can still have it there. But certainly most of your aims, and I would normally advise that you have about three or maybe four aims. Mm-hmm. And three out of those four or two of those three must be readily measurable. So we've spoken a lot about probably more in-person events. And obviously with everything that's gone on over the last couple of months, a lot of events have shifted online, become digital. So do you approach evaluating those differently to in-person events? I don't think there's a huge difference between evaluating online events um, or in person, to be honest. Uh, in some ways, some of it is a little bit easier mm. uh, online. Everyone's sitting in front of a, a computer or a phone. It's very, very easy to bring up a poll in Zoom, to link people to a Kahoot or a Mentimeter to ask questions. Um, I found it much easier to run focus groups online as well because people are, are it's easy to drop in for a quick meeting. So I can go back to participants and say, we're looking for two or three people to come together and really share what they thought of this experience. And I found people much more willing and able to do that online than in person. So um, even things like graffiti walls, you can bring up a whiteboard in Zoom or Teams and ask people to write or draw answers. So a lot of it can just be adapted to the online space. And if anything, I think evaluation is easier mm. online for some things. Now, evaluating podcasts <laughs> and YouTube videos, that's a challenge. Yeah, a whole other kettle of fish, that one. Uh, how would you kind of approach measuring those kind of maybe like social media, maybe more communications side of things? Mm, it's tricky it's really tricky so um, I think one of the hardest things to evaluate is something like a a YouTube video or uh, a podcast and for that the first thing I would say is watch what the professional YouTubers and podcasters are doing what you will notice is the the content is replete with calls to action enjoyed this video then like below make sure you subscribe and hit the bell notification so you know when a new video is posted they'll say that at the start they'll say that in the middle they will say that at the end Uh, got a question leave it down below we'll get right back to you constantly throughout the content enjoyed this use the hashtag and we'll get back to you on twitter we're really curious to know what you think of it's filled with questions it's filled with calls to action. And what they are trying to do is trying to create a communication process into an engagement one by inviting contribution. So what they're able to do is then look through the comments. What are people commenting on? What do they like? What are they interested in? What are they asking for? Um, When they are subscribing, when they're liking, they can work out which video is more successful than other videos. And maybe try and work out why did that one work? What did I do differently? Was it the topic? Was it the format? Was it the length? And so creating opportunities for engagement rather than just communication, so, so important. You can also think to 
expert reviewers as well. So if Mark Kermode, the film reviewer, says that a film is really, really fantastic, they're going to sell more tickets because they've brought someone in in a position of knowledge or expertise to review the content. And he has said, this is of quality and people trust his voice. So if you were creating YouTube videos, social media content, podcasts, you could look to someone who is at the top of their game, who really knows this, invite them to experience some of the content and write up their reflections. So if you have a pro YouTuber saying this channel is absolutely fantastic, that is an expert statement of endorsement and can be used for evaluation. So create opportunities to take it from communication into the engagement space and ask someone who really knows this stuff what they think of it. So I know there have been probably hundreds and thousands of public engagement activities, like say science festivals, that would have a sort of accompanying social media campaign. So when you're looking to evaluate festivals or any similar event like that as a whole, how much does that social media campaign contribute to the success or showing impact of the success of the festival and well i'm i'm not sure social media is difficult to evaluate because it's it's such a numbers game mm. um the, the first thing i would say is go into the backstages of these platforms whether it's twitter facebook they have um analytic pages which are going to help you work out who you're reaching and so you could be starting to tell a story of are you reaching the average user on Twitter or are you reaching a niche demographic? How connected, how expert are these people? So you're going to get some numbers. You can start comparing certain things. So if I was a science festival and I was running each year, then I might be looking to continually grow uh, my, my content, my following. Am I showing consistent growth, consistent growth that outstrips the average growth of a Twitter account? I'd be looking to see who is sharing my content and is it, a clear statement of endorsement so a retweet isn't necessarily an endorsement but um if someone is retweeting you know this podcast you send out a tweet saying new episode is up and someone retweets that saying this is a really fantastic episode you should listen to this that's a clear statement of endorsement and i'd be bookmarking that uh, so i'd go back i'd look at the analytics and the backstage i'd be looking for changes in behavior so like consistent growth um or I'd be looking at who I'm connecting with. So does it match with my target demographic? And I'd be looking for how my content is shared or celebrated online. So yeah, great. I would never have thought to bookmark things like that. It's easy enough to then just screenshot, cut and paste into your report. Boom, show, showing some more impact. So yeah, great tip that one. Um, so once you have all your feedback, your numbers, your responses, Again, it's probably going to depend on what you're looking for, but what sort of classes as meaningful or impactful? Is there kind of an arbitrary limit of, say, a 5% increase or something? Is there a minimum increase you need to see to say, yes, this is meaningful what we've done? I wouldn't say there's there's a kind of set level. I mean, what I tend to do is you have ideas of where the evaluation data might lead and it's not until you start to interpret that that you find the story starting to to emerge and this is the most interesting part of evaluation is sitting down with the data and particularly if it's um, comments from people if you've done lots of interviews or focus groups and you start to sort that data and you start to say okay 
this is the really important storyline. And when I'm being consultant for charities or, or universities, um, a lot of the story won't make it into the final cut of the paper. And sometimes the main story will actually be a little bit different from what we expected. And I'm not looking for uh, a certain number of changes, a certain uh, type of change. It really is trying to be led by what people are saying. And this is where giving people a voice comes in. Uh, so one particular project um, I worked on was with a, a visual impairment charity, Visibility, in the, the west of Scotland. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in to try and work out what it was like to live with a visual impairment and how connected or disconnected from your local community you were. And in that, that's an evaluation job. But I really was brought in to listen and to structure people's voice, to bring a group of disparate individuals together who'd never met each other, to get them to share their experience with me and then get me to interpret their story, to take all these different individuals and turn them into a chorus and use that chorus to tell a story. And that's the change that we're reporting. So you sit down, you go through all the data and you then try and think, what is the story here? And there's no set quantity to it. It might be a big change. It might be a small change. It might be something unexpected. But this is where at the end of the day, you're reporting on a story. So I'm hoping that this, for anyone that hadn't heard of evaluation before, is just going to encourage them to take that first step to start thinking about it and then start making those evaluation plans for their activities. But if someone wanted to kind of then take the next step, level up a little bit further, what are the next level type things to start thinking about and incorporating into your evaluation plans? Yeah, so I think that the starting block is even if you're totally new to evaluation, don't call it evaluation. Call it listening. Build in a section to your activity where you listen to the people you're working with. That's step one. Step two, you can start calling it evaluation and you can start doing it in a little bit more rigorous way. Um, as you get further, you get more experienced. You might want to get a little bit more in depth and a little bit clever with the information that you're asking. You might also want to think about how you're going to write it up or maybe publish your work as well. So there's engagement journals like Research for All, which publish mm -hmm. um, communication and engagement work. So you might decide, okay, step one, I'm just going to be exploring evaluation and I'm just going to listen to people. Step two, I'm going to start asking set questions to learn about specific aspects. Step three, I'm going to um, think about the reporting that I'm going to be doing and capture the information I'm going to require for my report. Step one, four, uh, uh, is I'm going to publish my work as well. So I'm going to need enough information for my report, also robust evaluation, so I'll be able to publish my work. But grow it gradually. Mm -hmm. Start by listening and get a little bit more professional with your listening. Given everything that we've mentioned today, what would be your number one tip or best piece of advice when it comes to creating a public engagement event and then evaluating its success? Create space for the people that you're working with. Engagement is, as I said at the start, by definition, a two-way process. Listening, asking, answering, a conversation. Step one is to build in that conversation into your work. Lots of questions, lots of silence from you. 
that is going to create space for people to share. It's going to also make your engagement more engaging. Then as you continue to grow, structure that conversational space. Structure the conversation so that you're getting information that you need. But the main thing, make engagement engagement. Make it two-way. Create space for people to share. Fantastic advice. So my final question is just something completely different. It's just another passion of mine that I just like to ask questions about. So my final question for you is, where in the world would you recommend traveling to and exploring and why? Where in the world? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Powerful question. Um, I mean, I've traveled to some uh, extraordinary places through communication and, and engagement. Um, uh, I looked at community, community engagement in Tanzania. So I did sessions out there. Uh, I went over to, to Hong Kong and, and spoke about being a science communicator. Um, and well, here's here's one that no one else will suggest. Here's no one. <laughs> Jersey. If you're interested mm. in science communication, public engagement, go to Jersey. There's a museum there called the Jersey War Tunnels, and it's done beautifully. It is the most fantastically laid out, experiential, emotive museum. They have built in space to listen to people. They've built in activities in a huge array of different ways. So if you are interested in engagement and communication, go along to the Jersey War Tunnels. And if you're just looking for a lovely little weekend trip, then go to Jersey anyway. So there's my recommendation, Jersey. Great recommendation. Um, great. So thank you so much for giving up your time, sharing amazing tips and advice but before you go maybe you can just let everyone know where they can find you online to find out more and how people can work with you yeah i'm all over the internet and i'm happy to connect with people so uh, my name is jamie gallagher and you can find me online by looking for jamie b gal jamie b g a l l and you'll find me there on twitter and instagram and facebook and twitch and youtube all the places and i'm happy to connect with people it's time for another trip to the DIY section of the podcast. So this is the place where I share an activity, a resource or tool that you can take away right now, add to your own SciComm toolkit and put into action straight away to build your own SciComm confidence. Today's tool is one that Jamie mentioned in our chat and I have used many times before and it was so useful to help me start thinking about evaluation when planning an engagement project and thinking about what I needed right from the beginning so it all wasn't this last minute scramble. And that is a logic model. So this is a worksheet where you can fill in your project aims, the inputs, audience demographics, your outputs, outcomes, and so on and so on. You can use this over and over again for all the different projects that you are already doing and will ever do. And it just helps to outline all that you need so you can plan your engagement project the most effectively and most efficiently. As always, all the links to Jamie's website and socials and all the useful tools and websites that he mentioned like Kahoot and Mentimeter and the NCCPE can all be found in the show notes on my website. You can find all the links you need and resources from this episode and all the other episodes at sofetalkscience.com forward slash toolkit. 
You can also come and join me on Instagram. I'm at soph.talks.science or you can follow the pod to stay up to date on all the latest announcements and discussions and such at SciComm Toolkit. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends, your family or your lab mates. It all helps me to get this podcast into the ears of more people and hopefully grow our community of confident science communicators even further. As always, I would be hugely, hugely grateful if you wanted to rate, review or subscribe to the podcast and any feedback or wishes for what you want to see in the future, please do let me know as I want this to be a super, super useful resource for you. So that is all from me. I will see you for the season finale in the next episode. So have a fab time until I see you again here on the Psycom Toolkit podcast. See ya.